Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Okay, I've got I've got a question that uh, I've been churning churning around, and it feels like it would be a good one to ask you mm-hmm. to get your thoughts on. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this uh, movement in the technology space called transhumanism. It's this. Mm, sort, I don't think so. It's a sort of philosophical position and an ideal of transcending our humanity mm. using technology. Mm. Um, what does that mean to transcend humanity? Well, it means different things for different people, I guess. But I mean, the basic idea, as I understand it, is that that if we have the the means to actually reprogram our biology or our or our or our minds, you know, and we're already doing that, obviously, with smartphones and and things, you know, it's already happening. I guess that's the interesting point. But if but if you sort of take it like a logical step further, what if you could, you know, extend radically extend lifespan or you know, enhance cognition so that your brain's tied into the Google Cloud and you're able to, you know, suddenly think, you know, at you know much higher bandwidth or, you know, different things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the idea seems to be to, in a way, escape samsara by reprogramming it, mm-hmm. you know, um, by merging with machines and, and, and becoming something other than what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels really contradictory to this kind of approach of, of like befriending the human experience and working with it while at the same time having sympathy for how like this isn't something we ordered, you know, this is like an evolutionarily pre-programmed. So most of the time, uh, I'll just be honest, shitty, shitty situation. That's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. Well, you know, we have to ask ourselves, um, a few questions. What is, the, what is the status of human experience? I'm not talking about human thought, but I'm talking about the actual visceral experience of being alive. What is the status of that? How do we evaluate it? What do we, what do we think about the fact that we as, um, as beings are these atavistic creatures that just seek pleasure most of the time? What do we think about that? Do we want to wipe that out? Do we want to um, marginalize experience of pain and suffering and confusion? One thing I think we have to keep in mind that if you look around the universe, everything operates by the force of attraction. Men and women are attracted you know, to each other or you know, to, if you happen to be gay, you're attracted to somebody of your own gender. Mammals are attracted. Atoms are attracted. You know, subatomic particles are attracted to each other. The sun and the moon and the earth all operate in a field of desire, we could say. They desire each other. I mean, their desire is different from our desire. So there's something fundamental about passion and desire and longing and hunger in our human life. And... Do we want to get to a place where that's not happening? That's an interesting experience. Yeah. 
you know, in the in the Vajrayana, it's uh, you turn your attention away from your thinking and away from your um, you know your cyber world, and you put it into the most primitive dimensions of your own human experience, and you explore. You begin to explore, for example passion, you know, you begin to explore the nature of your longing for another person. And you feel the warmth in your body, you feel the neediness, you look into it, you open to it, and you begin to discover that there's a whole world within that feeling that you never noticed before. And eventually, you it's almost as if you're descending through your own preconceptions and you get to a place where you find in your body a tremendous sense of openness and tenderness and love that's not personal and it's not ego-bound and there's no suffering in it. And at that point you feel you've, you've come into inhabit your most fundamental experience as a human being, and it's one that has a tremendous amount of um, freedom in it, and a tremendous amount of pleasure in it, and a tremendous amount of happiness. And how important is that to us as humans? Is that important? Is that real human happiness? Or is real human happiness being free from all of the density and the texture and the chaos of life? I mean, for Vajrayana, Freedom is the freedom to be completely what we already are in a state of uh, in a state that's not afflicted and is not conflicted and is not distressed. And in fact, you know, in the practice in the practicing lineages, they say that we suffer not because we're human, but because we're not willing to be human enough. We're not willing to surrender and sink into our human experience fully and explore it. We're always trying to maintain this kind of safe distance where we can manipulate and maneuver and control everything. So maybe there's some people that don't like being human. And I think we have to make room for that, but I'm not one of them. I, you know, the older I get, the more I feel the the warmth and the texture and the uh, the inspiration and the um, you know the pain and the pleasure and you know like you say the shitty reality of just being human and in there I find my life and I find my fulfillment when I approach it with a meditative approach and an attitude of curiosity and exploration and opening. I don't know, how do, you, how do you feel about that? I mean, when I see you know, people kind of really turning against what it means to be human, um, I feel bad for them. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do, I do as well, and I, I, I feel pretty clear about that perspective that you just shared, you know, that, that there's some deep truth in it, you know, to turn away and to you know, try to try to build a reality that is about escaping this reality. Yeah. Seems like it's going to have some unintended 
consequences that are going to be pretty bummer. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I guess I do also, I feel a sort of simpatico with that, the aspiration to, uh, to improve uh, the human condition, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in whatever way can be done. What would be improving it? What would that look like? Well, that's where it gets tricky because I don't know that like some some improvements seem to be very specific, you know, to certain people or to certain groups at certain times. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's certain universals like everyone having enough to eat, you know, think things like that, you know, some basic human needs. Maybe at this point, everyone having access to the world's information if they if they want to, because that seems to be able to enrich people's lives in so many ways. But at the same time, all those things bring about all sorts of downsides too. So I don't really know. I, I kind of, I feel like it's a, it's a confusing thing to want to improve the world and at the same time want to accept it uh, completely. You know? Well, I think, um, for example, you know, when you, when you explore your experience and you know you really become open to the the full range of your own sensitivities a human being you become much much more sensitive to other people much more sympathetic much more able to um, be helpful I, I think you know when when you don't have that sort of basic human heartedness and you don't and many you know many people in this world, haven't had the opportunity to have to be able to actually feel what it's like to love someone else or to be loved when you don't have that then no matter what you know it's it's not going to be helpful to you and it, and it may actually be very harmful to other people so to me step number one is making peace with being a human being and developing all of our capacities of uh, somatic intuition and feeling and you know sympathy and loving we have to develop those and we have to have other help other people to develop them i mean you almost get to the point where the smarter you are the more human you are you know i think in some people's minds that to be smarter and more adept and have more information at your disposal makes you more of a human being and i don't think that's necessarily true i mean it could be I'm all for developing technology, but if we don't develop the person who's using the technology, I mean, where are we? There are a lot of very smart people walking around who are really, really unhappy. Right. That that seems to be one of the epidemics of, of like the information age. Um, I was reading the other day that our attention spans have gone down four seconds on average in the last 14 years. Oh my goodness. From 12. Frightening. Yeah, from 12 to 8. And apparently a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. So we just crossed under the goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> sunk down to the bottom feeders. <laughs> so that, that's, I mean, that's a pretty profound change. Like we're losing, what, 33% of our attention span capacity in the last 14 years, mm-hmm. which, I mean, almost certainly related to our use of technology. Well, you know, I have a, um, a, a 15-year-old stepson and of course, this is where the, you know, the texting and the cell phones and everything are really in high gear. Yes. And what I see, you know, I don't see it so much for for our son because we're all over the poor guy. You know, he can't he can't get a 
he doesn't get a break. <laughs> but but I think in general, um, what I see through the lens of the 15-year-old culture is that on the one hand, you can say it's really great. You know, we have cell phones, we have um, Xboxes, we have, you know, uh, computers that can do all kinds of things. That's wonderful. But the problem is the way they're being used. And my observation is that people use them as a way to um, allay their anxiety and to regulate their emotions. And the problem is it doesn't, uh, you know, it may in the short term, it may help you reduce your anxiety to get on your cell phone or be texting people. But the problem is it doesn't really solve the problem. And then later when you try to have relationships with people, you still got the problem and the problem isn't being solved. And plus you don't know how to solve the problem. So that would be another thing that I, I would worry about is that the all the tech all the technology becomes a substitute for actually working through one's fundamental human angst and one's conflicts and one's sense of loneliness, you know, and, and becomes a substitute. And you can say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is you don't grow as a person. You know, the developmental stages of the human person don't have a chance to advance when you're holding it up by addictions. I mean, that's one of the, the things that I think um, the addiction theory and practice people have really made clear, that when you're engaged in addictive behavior, it short circuits the neurological process of human development. You don't grow as a person. I, I ran into this, um, I think, most commonly working as a university teacher with kids who smoked a lot of pot and then, um, you know, would try to meditate. And what I found out and, and I think what in now is commonly accepted is that, you know, if you smoke pot beyond a certain point, you start smoking at 12 years old, then when you're 20, 25, 30, you're still going to be 12 years old emotionally. But it's not just true of pot, it's true of all addictive behavior. And I think one of my concerns, just as a, you know, a parent and a teacher, is that a lot of the way in which modern technology is being used actually gets in the way of people growing as individuals. And that, that's very concerning. Yeah, yeah. It's something, um, especially with Buddhist geeks, that we've talked a lot about and explored a lot because... Mm. And not just the, the use, but the design, too. Like how people are designing these tools and technologies. Because some of them are very explicit about um, wanting people to be addicted to it. That's their whole business model is based on figuring out how to design something that does that. Is, is that does Google do that? Um, you know, I don't know the degree to which Google does that, but it seems like all of the big companies to some degree are Think about involved it, yeah. in that. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And it seems like many, much less, although they're out there, are thinking about how to design things to lead to well-being or, you know, to a deeper sense of stillness, uh, you know. The, but, but that it's interesting that that could actually be a design principle underlying how a technology is created, how it's crafted. I think Apple in some ways um, has had that as part of their ethos, you know that technology is about human potential, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they try to create things that are easy to use as opposed to complex and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that, you can sort of see it there, but it's definitely not the most common uh, 
motivation or inspiration for how things are designed. Well, you know, it's interesting. This circles back now to uh, talk about Shikantaza yeah. in the sense that um, even people who are totally addicted to uh, their electronic devices or whatever it may be, the interesting point is when people sit down in Shikantaza and they don't actually do anything, which is really what the posture does for you. It, it says just, you know, what do I do? Just be in the posture. Just have a straight back and have your chin down and just sit there and wait. Then the, the transformation process just picks right up and it really starts unfolding. So, you know, in a way, that's interesting that um, for somebody who teaches meditation, this, is, this could be a great uh, selling point, that it, in a way, it uh, is, is remedial action for a technological world, really, that is not going to nourish you. But if you're willing to sit and do nothing, then your body will just go through its own process of change, just give it a little bit of space. Yeah, so it's in, in some ways it's the total powering down. Total um, powering down. Yeah. <laughs> total powering down. <laughs> and yet, you know, and yet we have to power back up and and operate in in the, you know, you've got an iMac just behind you. <laughs> um, we still have to function in that in this space. It seems like unless unless we have the opportunity to, you know, just kind of like unplug completely, which I haven't really very little interest in. Well, I don't think I don't think anybody has to unplug completely. Yeah. You know, I what what happens to me when I sit, um, you know, I'll sit down and do my meditation, and a lot of things will come up. And what comes up is pretty much how I need to fill in the blank. You know, how I need to maybe address this person, or how I need to work on this problem, or how I need to uh, relate with my son, or you know, it's always a, it's always life that is coming up, but it's not the life that's viewed through my anxiety. It's the life that comes up from my body, the life that is really there for me. Now, I'll give you an example that I've been thinking about lately. I have a a relationship of long-standing work relationship that really um, really went got into a very very bad place, and part of the bad place was that. Um, I, in my own mind, I couldn't think of a single thing, good thing to say about this person. And I've been kind of working at it with the Shikantaza. And what's happened, you know, and what I'll do is I'll bring the person and put them in front of me and just sit there and see what my body has to say about it. And what's happened is that um, every day I see a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more about, you know, the pattern that I actually was largely responsible for instigating in the first place. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in years. And then things that I've done that have been incredibly insensitive. And then overtures this other person has made that I never responded to. And then, uh, you know, how I started to realize, well, this person feels like I never even saw them. I never saw who they were, acknowledged them. All this information I had not... I had blocked out because I was so busy thinking about this person as being this bad person. And what I'm getting to is when you meditate in a very embodied way, what happens to you is life happens. And it's all about how you're going to live and how you're going to relate. So the idea of meditation as somehow checking out doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. 
If I were designing computer software, I would spend at least two or three hours a day meditating to do what you said, which is let's develop some kind of software that actually enhances people's ability to grow and to, f- and to experience human happiness. Yes. Yeah, you know, just to get kind of a little even further out with that thought, uh, if that's okay, because sure, I'd be yeah. curious, you know, to hear to hear your response. Um, mm. There's there's a sort of trend now with um, you know headsets, these EEG headsets, yeah, and the direction they're moving in is pretty clearly toward you know what they call thought based computing, yeah, which you know from a Buddhist perspective is like a really scary thought. <laughs> But you know, but it but it's also really interesting because if I can directly, you know, influence this uh, digital, you know, environment, yeah, uh, which is increasingly becoming, you know, com- very integrated with our world, yeah, um, directly through the mind, you know, mm-hmm. through thought or intention, mm-hmm. volition, mm-hmm. you know, what does that mean about? the kind of mind one would need to have in order to do that effectively. Because mm-hmm. it seems like you'd really need a mind that could like shift the toggle between non-conceptual mm-hmm. and, and conceptual yeah. and directed and focused yeah. thought or intention. Yeah. To really even, I mean, I could imagine someone sitting there, their minds are just spinning and all this crazy stuff is happening. <laughs> you know? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> anyway, I've, I've often wondered, you know, if, if the contemplative awareness might become a critical part of, of our future engagement with this evolving mm. digital uh, environment. I would think so. You know, I would think the more um, facile you are with your whole, you know, psychophysical being, and particularly with what you say, the non-conceptual awareness and the sort of uh, openness where you're not thinking, and then being able to go translate into thought, you know, when you want to, I would think that would be a necessity. Mm. Yeah, me too. I mean, it seems like a necessity now. Yeah. But <laughs> I guess it, it's not perceived that way. Yeah. Because people can, they still can get by by think, thinking a lot. Well, I don't think they're just getting by. I, I think there's so much, there's such a high level of anxiety in our culture. And it's really hard to find somebody that doesn't, isn't anxious anymore. And I think that drives a lot of the speed and the sort of frenetic ambition about, you know, people think really, I I do think this is a a sort of, we're back to the 18th century enlightenment, you know, that if we can just get into our thought completely, everything's going to be okay. It can be like totally rational and... Yeah, totally. And we're going to be free ourselves from all this sort of sticky emotional stuff. And the problem is it's the sticky emotional stuff that's driving that ambition, which is basically fear and anxiety. So that's a, that's a conundrum. That's a riddle. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't work very well. And then, you know, we hear from the uh, NIH that, you know, in a couple of decades, 50% of us are going to be mentally ill and the other 50% are going to be taking care of the 50% that's ill. Wow, that's, that's a shocking uh, prediction. Well, everything is increasing, you know, very, very rapidly. Depression is increasing and anxiety disorders and a lot of the more full-blown, uh, you know, psychiatric disorders um, 
they're really, they're really increasing. Why is it? And why isn't the digital age helping us with that? Right, right. Yeah, it, it's, it feels like such uncharted territory in a way that we're, that we're in right now with all of these like capacities that, you know, really were like, they're really like magic on the one hand. Yeah. And then all of this diminished capacity, like you're describing, mm-hmm. increase in mental illness, depression, like being out of touch with certain just basic human experiences mm-hmm. that maybe, maybe came more naturally for people at another time. Uh, I don't know, but yeah. You know, um, I don't think the, you know, for all the excitement and all the wonder of the discoveries that we're making digitally, I don't, I really don't think that um, people are very happy in that world. If, if you see somebody who's a sort of computer whiz and they're really happy, they probably have a relationship and they probably have a family and they probably know how to, to uh, down-regulate. I, I'd say that's probably probably true um, from what I've seen. I mean, some of the tech leaders that I know are the people that they're most aware of the downsides of the technology because they help create them. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's stories about Steve Jobs. He didn't let his kids use iPads. Is that uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was ex- extremely uh, strict around how his kids engage with technology. That's fascinating. In a way that is totally out of uh, character of how most people would imagine. Yeah. And it's just the answer to everything. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. that, that's, I mean, there's a paradox. Yeah. <laughs> On yeah. the one hand, he clearly felt it was useful to create the technology and yet also uh, seemed to understand some of the downsides yeah. pretty well. Yeah. And was himself uh, a Zen practitioner at one point, studying with Copencino. Yeah. So yeah. weird ties there. So I, yeah, it's it's a it's a bizarre thing. Um, I appreciate your point about uh, seeing a kind of decrease in happiness, or maybe just people not being fundamentally happy. Yeah. I mean, what what, what are we here for, really? I think. It, that comes back to what is the status of human experience? I mean, do people care about their human experience or not? I mean, to me, that's the key question. Yeah, I think Google might really want to be transcending the human experience. They yeah, might not want to so, be. It's so painful. And, yeah. you know, I mean, sometimes one meets people who feel they've got so many problems that, that they're irresolvable. And the only way they're ever going to be able to get through life is just by trying to ignore them. And so they will do things to ignore them. But, um, you know, like drinking or drugs, but at a certain point I wonder, you know, how much of our use of technology is also simply ignoring our problems and hoping they're going to go away. Right, know. right. It's an, old, uh, it's an old problem with a new, like a new form. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know that we have any, uh, <laughs> except for sitting for three seconds. I think we're both concerned. <laughs> we don't really have a lot of solutions here, but... We're both technology users and meditators, so yeah. how's that work? Yeah, totally. I appreciate you going down that rabbit hole with me, uh, with the technology stuff. It's our world. Yeah, it's our world. It's yeah. So I just spent 
um, five days up in the mountains with uh, a bunch of CEO tech startup CEOs. Yeah. And I was there leading meditation mm. and, uh, everything you described was, you know, what, what was evident in, in their experience, you know, yeah. they're creating companies and creating products and they're feeling anxious and, you know, all of that. Um, so, you know, they're feeling the pain points as much as anyone. Oh yeah. Maybe more because they because of the increase of, of uh, responsibility. And also the workload. And the workload is yeah. so unbelievable. You know, when you're in yeah. that in that line. Right? That and that and that world is just crazy in terms yeah. of, especially if you take money yeah. from one of these you know venture capital firms and yeah. depending on who you're working with and they can just you know grind you into the ground. <laughs> And then ninety to ninety-five percent of them fail. <laughs> right. So <laughs> human condition. <laughs> yeah, I guess the human condition's a hundred percent fail, but hundred percent people die. <laughs> you know, I think that um, each of us has a role to play in this world. You know, everybody. Everybody can't be the same. Everybody can't meditate. Everybody can't teach meditation. Um, but what I think is that the kind of thing that we do, that I do, and that you do, I think if you can give people some kind of way to experience their own life as being worthwhile and, um, you know, potentially happy and their own situation, whatever it may be, as being joyful, that's that's a huge gift, and then they can do whatever they do, and it'll it will bear fruit. Mm. So that's that's the way I see what I'm doing. I'm not trying to. I don't think about myself or anybody else becoming enlightened, but I think that meditation does put you in touch with a lot of very positive resources in your own human experience, and um, and once you become aware of those, then you're not trying to find your happiness on a computer screen or, you know, in some kind of uh, new device that's been invented. You find your happiness in your life, in, in your relationships, in the ups and downs of life, and you grow as a person, and there's a lot of fulfillment in that. And I feel like, you know, it doesn't really matter how rich you are, how poor you are, or what your circumstances. If you can give people that, you've given them a really, a really important gift. So, you know, if that can be supported by, by technology, that would be amazing. Mm. I mean, and, and to some degree, it seems to be, um, to be supported by technology. Do you feel that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just you were mentioning the CDs, you know. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, the fact that someone across the world can, you know, can like go through and do these different meditations and instructions. That's, I don't, that, that wasn't possible. That's very true. That, that, that's really true. And I'll tell you something interesting. We started offering, when we do a program, we offer it, you know, uh, very widely on the internet. We did a, a month-long Datun, and we, um, it was a, a trial run, but we had some people do it online, which meant they got the talks and they had their own discussion group online. And people said that it was a very very, very affecting and very powerful. So I, I really, 
I agree with you on that. In fact, we're spending a lot of our time trying to figure out how to use the technological world to deliver the Dharma in more effective ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have students all over in China and um, Southeast Asia and New Zealand and Australia, and that would never have been possible years ago. So it's really true. It's this sort of very double-edged sword, isn't it? After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.